Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Ayana Felicia Jackson. Born in East Orange, New Jersey, she lives and works between New York City, Paris, and Johannesburg, South Africa. She uses archival impulses to assess the impact of the colonial gaze on the history of photography by using her lens to deconstruct 19th and early 20th century portraiture she questions photography's authenticity and role in perpetuating socially relevant and stratified identities. Ayana maps the ethical considerations and relationships between the photographer, subject, and viewer, in turn exploring themes around race, gender, and reproduction. Her work examines myths of the black diaspora and restages colonial archival images as a means to liberate the black body. Ayana's work is collected by major local and international institutions, including the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Newark Museum, the J.P. Morgan Chase Art Collection, Princeton University Art Museum, the National Gallery of Victoria in Austria, the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She was a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellow for Photography and the recipient of a Smithsonian Fellowship. In 2022, Ayana founded Still Art, an artist residency program focused on emerging Southern African contemporary artists of all disciplines in Johannesburg. In April of 2023, she opened her first major institutional exhibition at the National Museum of African Art, Smithsonian Institution. Enjoy this episode featuring Ayana Alicia Jackson, and visit CerebralWomen.com for additional information. Ayana, welcome to my podcast. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start with you sharing with us when you discovered your artistic passion. Wow, that's a wonderful question. I actually feel more like the artistic viewpoint discovered me. I kind of say that because I, I often say that I feel as though I fell backwards into the art world. Um, it definitely was not a site that I had set out for myself or even an inclination that I knew to nurture. I have a lot of photographers or like, you know, photography in terms of family photos uh, has been a big part of how my family communicates. So we travel, come back, we sit in the dining room table, we put the slides in the slide machine and we watch it at my grandmother's house. Like that's how I grew up because I have two Olympians in the family. So they were always traveling with um, my cousins. And so, you know, they would go to, they went to Korea, they went to Barcelona, they went to Brazil. So, you know, I guess I learned to use a camera and I learned the need to use a camera from them. And I learned how to use it from my father. 
But it was many years later after I finished with a degree in sociology from Spelman that I decided to, to kind of use it with more focus and intention. And then eventually I started to be asked to, you know, share my voice, whether it was in magazines or documentaries or what eventually led to being the fine art space. How did what you studied impact your work? Because I studied at Spelman College, we had to do two semesters of a course called, I think all Spelmanites back then and now have to do two semesters of African diaspora and the world. And it was in that context that I started to see the need to, I probably wouldn't have known to use the term deconstruct but at the time, but to kind of address representation of the Black body, particularly in film and photography. So I guess what I can say is that, you know, what ultimately happened for me was that I started to feel, so photography and sociology kind of have a similar, if not the same birthday, like a lot of early photography was a part of, particularly when it comes to the non-white body, was a part of the colonial enterprise. So they're kind of, you know, the photographs of non-white bodies and the study of non-white bodies and the study of society and societies were kind of all happening at the same time. So by the time I actually started to, when I put down the pen, because I wasn't exactly material for becoming like an academic, I mean, who knows, but uh, you know, I didn't feel, I didn't feel coming out of college that I was going to have an academia, a career in academia, but I still had the interest in sociology and social science. So I kind of put down my pen and I picked up the camera. And in that sense, I very early started to realize that I was fighting photography with photography. So that's kind of what I would say. So how would you define your practice? That changes. <laughs> it's been changing every five years or so. At the moment, I identify as a lens-based artist, multimedia, and I'm working my way up to perhaps embracing the idea of conceptual because in the beginning, I considered myself a photographer. I was analog, I was in the chemistry, I was using manual functions more often than not. I worked with film. But then uh, around the time that I turned the lens on myself, both two things conflated, the bringing down of the cost and um, the increased accessibility of digital photography, and therefore the ability to kind of do more larger scale, more images at a time, this kind of thing. That happened, and the fact that I really uh, didn't really know what I was doing when I started shooting my own body. So I also wasn't very comfortable with other people taking photographs of me. So the insecurity of turning the lens on myself and, in general, not knowing a lot about photography beyond what I did in like the, you know, the short lessons or two that I took along the way, that plus digital work becoming accessible conflated and that's how I wound up in this space. Are you influenced by other artists? Definitely. When I finally realized that I was going to be engaging with what I understood to be a very different world, the fine art world versus just the photography world, I was told by my best friend who kind of dragged me into the art world, Ingrid Leffler, that I needed to know other artists. You know, at the moment, it's pertinent for me to say, because as we are speaking, Renee Cox has like a major, amazing exhibition at Guildhall up in East Hampton. What's funny is that I found myself when I was looking at the exhibition the last week or so, 
that I was reminded of when your mama's last supper, when the Your Mama series was released. I have a very vivid memory of that same dining room table where we would have the slide machine. I have a very vivid memory of the article about Giuliani being brought up. My grandfather at the head of the table, I see the newspaper, it's the Star-Ledger. And it must have been a holiday because we only used the dining room <laughs> for holidays. I remember we had, a, we had a strong debate. My father was a musician, so in that sense, an artist. And my his sister-in-law, my aunt Gwen, is an artist to this day. So... I remember a, a very hot, heated debate at the table about censorship. And because part of the family is religious and a part of the family is artistic, it was really kind of educational. So I can't remember how old I was, but I couldn't have been, I must have been a teenager. I wasn't quite in college as far as I know. So in that sense, I kind of say, like, I feel like I may have been subconsciously influenced by Renee my whole life, or like since before I even knew to pick up the camera for the fine art purpose. But then I remember when I first actually did start looking at photography, Carrie Mae Weems came up in the Kitchen Table series. And that one, because again, I've already been talking about the things that happen around the dining room table. You know, I remember my dad or someone showing that to me. This is before, you know, also around that time before I really, really started to understand like what my voice was going to be. So I would say that the two of them are probably like my godmothers without knowing it, right? I eventually went on to meet both of them. But, and then when I did fully turn the lens on myself, I would have had to add, you know, Katarina Zivruding who was a professor that I engaged with when I audited a couple semesters of fine art school when I was living in Berlin, which is a whole other story if you want to hear. Terry Mae Weems, Renee Klotz, and then because I got interested in photographic theory, then Deb Willis. So that would be probably like my four main influences. With your work, are, are there thoughts or concepts that connect everything? As we are recording this, I am preparing for an exhibition in Mexico City that is loosely titled The what is it, Invisible Ties to the Strongest Bonds. And the reason, it's a Nietzsche quote, but the reason for that is because it's a survey exhibition that is going through several bodies of work. And I really chose that title because I wanted to be able to talk about the how one body of work has given birth to the next body of work. So to that end, I guess I can say that the strongest tie is, is addressing for myself and for others what it means to live in or to inhabit a Black woman's body that was born in the 20th century and lives in the 21st century. Because all of the work, especially once I turned it on to myself, actually prior to that, you know, it started with Afro-Latinidad and Afro-Mexico, because that's the kind of my, my undergraduate thesis in, at Spelman was on race relations in Latin America and the Caribbean and the way that different, the Afro-Caribbean versus kind of like a Eurocentric space like Argentina, where I studied abroad, or versus like Dominican Republic, where I studied abroad, versus, you know, North America and Central America, like Mexico, where I hadn't had a chance to study when I was in school. So when I, my first, my actual first body of work, African by Legacy, Mexican by Birth, was a documentary on, on African, Afro-Mexicans. And from there, I ended up turning the lens on myself, but it was still an exercise of trying to, A, broaden the map of Blackness, 
to decenter the Black American experience when it, when it comes to what it means to be Black in the Americas. I felt that there wasn't enough representation of the experience of people in places like Nicaragua or Colombia or, or, or Guatemala or, you know what I mean, or even the small community that still exists in places like Argentina. So like this was the thing. And then when I turned it on myself, it started to be a more deliberate and intentional, more vulnerable way to get at why that was even interesting to me, why I felt the need to complicate my existence as a Black woman, as a Black American woman, you know? So that's like the biggest tie. And so I, so I went back to the archive with Archival Impulse. I went to I went to like contemporary like news with like poverty pornography and the, the kind of overrepresentation of death, disaster, disease, and destruction. Whereas of course, archival impulse was more about the colonial gaze. And then I got frustrated with that and I wanted to look at, you know, other representations of Black women, whether it be having been inspired by Santuma Fokeng's Black photo album, where he looked at people living in South Africa in the Victorian clothes of the day. And then I was able to like put that next to the first class of Spelmanites in 1881. But then at the same time, you have the human zoos where people are like shivering and almost dying from at the World's Fairs when they were being exhibited as kind of, you know, a stage between human, you know what I mean? So then I was like, no, like there's other versions of what it meant to be a Black body in, 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 at the turn of the 20th century. And then that led to stories like Sarah Forbes Bonetta, you know, Queen Victoria's goddaughter, who knew that there was a Black aristocracy in England to the degree that she was able to marry a, a Nigerian aristocrat that was in, in England at the time, Sarah Forbes Bonetta. And then it moved on from stories that I wanted to see to, you know, people that I wish existed to people who did exist to where I am now, which is with the exhibition that's currently up at the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art, where it's in the speculative fiction realm. You know, I'm looking at the myth of Drexia, I'm looking at this fictional, fantastical, mythological society of survivors at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean who were able to be born while, you know, to mothers who were either thrown overboard or jumped overboard the slave ships. And so that's the thread. It's kind of, it's, it's always looking to heal myself and how I feel about my identity and also heal the audience that engages with the work to begin to recognize some of the, the nuances of how the Black body, and particularly the Black woman's body, had been misunderstood, misrepresented, framed both figuratively and literally. So when you are creating, you said you think about your audience. Do you, do you think they understand your work? I think I have multiple audiences. First of all, being myself. <laughs> I don't really understand my work either <laughs> because it's a journey. I mean, I know what my intention is. That's the the thing about having come out of a, a research method of that is linked to sociology. It's like you can have a hypothesis, but whether you prove it or not is not really the point, which is why typically one body of work leads to the next. Like it's usually some kind of unanswered question that leads to the next one. But then I have other Black people. I have other Black women. And then that gets parsed out into, you know, their their site specificity or their geographic specificity in terms of how they relate to the work. And then from there, you know, and I and I think after once I leave the black woman, 
it be, it gets more fractured, I would say, in terms of like how well I can be sure that they get it, right? The male audience might not be so sensitive to the violence of the way that bare-breastedness was shown in early photography and how it's linked to the idea of hypersexualizing of the Black woman or the idea that the shape of our bodies and the presentation of our bodies and the bare-breastedness might link to some kind of hypersex drive, right? Like, men might not be as interested in, like, wanting to, like, disengage with that set of ideas, right? I'm not saying they don't, but, you know. And then when it comes to... You know, some people really don't want to think about the slave trade, right? We're dealing with that currently. You know, we're fighting just in this country, the United States, we're fighting this country just to kind of collectively agree that it happened and that it's important to like deal with and that it might be our original sin, at least on this hemisphere. Well, of course, it begins with the indigenous peoples, but but those two, you know, so there are people that aren't ready to engage with that. So they're not going to want to engage with the story, the myth of Drexia, because you'd have to first believe that the slave trade happened and that this many millions of 12 or 15 million people perish and that, you know, millions also just never made it. You have to be ready to deal with that. But what I do like is that, you know, there are some people who walk into the exhibition, black, white, male, female, like, you know, all the, the, the spectrum who, you know, they enter it at their own in their own way. Like it's that kind of when and where I enter of it all. Right. I think my exhibition, that exhibition in particular and my work in general allows multiple points of entry. I had a woman walk in, a black American woman walk in and when I started speaking about the water spirits that are referenced in the exhibition, she couldn't handle it. Like she walked out and I was like, I said to her daughter, I was like, oh no, did we lose your mom? And she was like, well, she's very Christian. And you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, Santeria Vudun and these things and it doesn't work for her. But then by the time we got to the, she just kind of left and just started to look at the exhibition on her own. And then when we got to another part of the exhibition, she joined the group again. So, you know, I learned that also. So I, I think that do my audiences get it? Not necessarily. Um, I think they get what they need. Do you feel Black art can be defined? No, not at all. I, you know, I think that Black artists, the only thing that would link us is, is the fact that the artist identifies as Black. <laughs> you know, Alma Thomas, this is like kind of, you know, stance on abstraction, kind of like, yeah, you know, before I knew Alma Thomas was Black, did I assume that, she, I, I wouldn't say that I assumed that she was Black any more than I would say, I might have assumed that she wasn't, right, because of my access and my kind of like education on fine art. But there's this, this part, I, I curated a show years back called Selling the Shadow to Support the Substance, which was, of course, based on Sojourner Truth's kind of like a uh, statement and her carte de visites. And I, and I remember asking the artists that I worked with, um, Ingrid and I, Ingrid Lafleur and I curated that together. And I remember we were kind of like asking about that, like, you know, like, is Black art political or is Black art and are Black artists politicized, right? And I think that comes question right so it's like of course we can choose to create outside of the frame of blackness as a subject but our point of view is still connected to living as a black person in this time and the black experience but does that mean that all of our art is political no does the art world through its exclusion of 
non-white artists or non-European or non-American artists that are not, you know, like that look at us is the act of, of bringing us into uh, more visibility political? Absolutely. But we don't need to be right creating out of our politics. I 100% do. But I don't think it's obligatory to create out of your politics to for your work to be politicized and for which also eventually makes it easy to lump us all in as the same. So I don't think, no, I think that I guess maybe yes and no and maybe so. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I think it's a lot to like it's not a yes or no question, really. So share with us, what are you excited about right now? I'm excited to be starting a new project. I received during the period of working on From the Deep, I was awarded a fellowship with the Alturas Foundation from out in San Antonio to create new work. I'm not ready to say what it's all about yet, but um, if everything goes as as I would like, um, you'll start to see little bits and pieces of that, hopefully as soon as um, the exhibition at Marianne Ibrahim Gallery in Mexico City. And I'm excited about it because it's like, it's terrestrial. I'm, I'm not in the sea anymore, um, which was amazing, but I realized that I'm, I'm embracing a whole new landscape. And yeah, like new tools, new ideas, new stories, and new collaborations, hopefully. So I'm very, very excited to see what comes next. I can only say that it has to do uh, with Texas-Mexico history, that border. And I can say that it, it is, um, it's taking me back to my earlier days of working on Afro-Latinidad and thinking about that Underground Railroad South. So I'm excited about that, but that's about as much as I want to say for now. <laughs> this has been great. So I have a couple more questions. Um, the first one is, what do you feel is the purpose of art? The purpose of art, I would say, is to help you to dream new dreams or think about new things. I guess that's, that's what it is for me. I think that the artist's imagination, it literally is a creative process, right? And so when an artist from whatever discipline puts something out into the world and says, hey, listen to this or smell that or look at that, I think they're inviting the next person to see something that they see or experience something that they're experiencing. And I think its job is to get you outside of yourself and maybe with luck into what is hopefully a pleasant experience of, of being privy to another person's sensory self, right? Now, that's not to say, of course, that when you're dealing with painful subjects that it's not going to be painful to engage with. But but I feel like that's what it is, is to get you out of yourself and maybe a little bit closer to another. And what is your role? I think I would say that my role would be, I don't know why, what comes to mind, like maybe it's because I was talking about my grandmother's dining room table, is to be a steward. I think that what I'm worried about or what I'm trying to address or what I'm trying to heal, I think resonates with other people's traumas or, or, or healing or misunderstanding, right? And search for understanding. So I get to be kind of a, a, a steward of that. Right. And it's not, it's not, I don't know the difference between a shepherd and a steward because I wouldn't, I wouldn't say shepherd. I don't intend to lead people, but I feel like there's something about being a 
custodian of, of, of something and, and helping people to engage with it. Right. And so it's like, my job is not to be at the, at the pulpit. My job is to hand you the pamphlet and let you know that you're welcome to sit down, but I'm not going to force you to do it. And I'm not going to stop you if you walk out. So I would say that that's kind of with, within my intentionality as an artist, I would say that my role is, is, is out of stewardship. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for Cerebral Women. When you first told me, I think we were in Mexico City, that you were interested, I was like looking over my shoulder like, who, me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Your voice, after interviewing you, your voice is very important. And uh, now I really appreciate the work that you're doing. It's been great. Thank you. I appreciate you too. Sitsis in arms. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. <laughs>